Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. While you are there, you can learn more about who we are as a church, see the time and locations of our weekend gatherings, and see the different reoccurring ministries that happen on a weekly basis. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Back in the uh, late 1930s and into the early 1940s, um, there was a, a couple, uh, Russell and Darlene, uh, and they got married, and uh, both Russell and Darlene set out for Papua New Guinea uh, there in the late 1930s after they got married. And, and not long after that, um, as you are familiar with, with world history, um, World War II happened. And it was right after the attack on Pearl Harbor that uh, Darlene and her husband, uh, that, their little, that little place was, was invaded by the Japanese and, and they were uh, taken into captivity and they were separated and, uh, and they were placed into separate trucks and taken to separate camps um, on different islands. And as they were separated, um, Russell's last words to Darlene and they never saw each other again after that because uh, he passed away in an internment camp. Um, his last words to her as, as they were taking her away and removing them from each other were, he quoted the, the second half of Hebrews 13, 5, and he said, Darlene, remember, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so for the next three years, Darlene Rose was in an internment camp um, facing all kinds of horrors um, being, being in that place. Um, I want you to listen to, to her tell part of her story of what she experienced when she was in an internment camp in the 1940s during World War II. We saw suddenly that there, was, there were many planes coming. They were moving out of the east and they were coming toward our camp and everybody got out there and stopped their work and we dropped our shovels and our picks and we looked up at all these planes coming, beautiful double fuselage planes. We'd never seen them before, P-38 Lightnings. And suddenly there were silver things coming from the backs of the planes and some were yelling, canned goods. And I said, no chocolate bars. And others were saying, no, they're pamphlets. And we were all yelling something. And then we heard the whistling of the bombs and we knew we were wrong. And over that little camp of two acres square, they laid 5,000 incendiary bombs. Just minutes, everything was going up in flames. I ran, I jumped into the ditch where we I were supposed to lie when there were bombings. And the minute my feet hit the bottom of that ditch, the Lord said, you borrowed a Bible from that little Chinese woman. I said, that's right, Lord, I have no right to let it burn. And I jumped out of the ditch and I ran to the barracks that was burning and I grabbed that Bible off of my upper rack and I came out and I saw that they finally had opened the gate so we could get out of this burning holocaust. And I ran to the gate with others and we went through it. We got down there and here we were just in a beehive of Japanese soldiers. There were 138,000 soldiers around that camp. We didn't even know they were there. They had their machine guns set up and they yelled, T-Door and you, T-Door. They just 
turned on you with their guns, with the bayonets fixed on them, and you just threw yourself out on the ground, and they were running over the tops of us to get to their machine guns, and they began to machine gun the planes, and of course the planes just turned around and came down, and they strafed us with machine gun bullets. And I dropped my hand onto my, uh, my head onto my hand, and I said, God, if at the end of this day anybody's alive, it will be a miracle. When the last of the planes had gone, and the dust, the sound of the planes was no longer audible, and I could see that all of these things that had been burning had stopped burning, and there was smoke uh, coming up out of the camp. And I thought, Lord, I'm alive. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. I finally found Mrs. Presswood. I said, let's go back up to where our barracks was. Maybe we can find our tin cans, our spoons, something that has uh, been preserved even in the fire. We got up to where the barracks had been, and nobody knew that I had my bride's book sewn inside a native mat. How it happened, only God knows. But when that barracks burned, it fell backwards. The beds came down, the mat burned away, and must have been the wind that blew the, the bride's book open. And there in the center, on that beautiful black page, was this brilliant gold ink standing out of the certificate. And I looked down at it, and the sun, the last rays of the sun, was making that gold to shine. And I said, Lord, that was the only thing I had left. Couldn't I just have that? And the minute I touched it, it just completely disintegrated. I said, that was all I had. We'll come back to her story at the end, but as, as we get into this next chapter of Zechariah, there's a question that I want to ask you this morning, um, the question I believe God has for us as, as individuals and as a church, and that's this. What do you do while you are waiting for God's promises to come to pass? What, what do you do when you're waiting in that time frame that's not pleasant, not enjoyable. It might be severe. It might be just annoying. But what, what do you do while you're waiting for God to fulfill his promises? Those things that you're anticipating, you're looking forward to what God will do, and, but you're in, you're in the waiting part of it. Do you wait it out and feel bad for yourself because you're there and you, you don't feel like you deserve it and that Maybe you look and you see other people who are doing better, but you seem to feel like they don't deserve to do any better. Or do you recognize that God wants to do a work of transformation in you during that time? A number of years ago, probably like a period of seven, eight years in my life, I was, had a job I didn't like, and I was really frustrated and uh, I was upset with God because he wasn't giving me what I thought I deserved. It wasn't a bad job. But there's this time of waiting to see what God would do. And, and, and I remember how I was just wanting it to be done. Wanting to push through it and feel kind of bad for myself. And it wasn't until toward the end that I began to realize that the whole 
purpose of me being in that spot was because God wanted to develop in me things that would make me prepared to participate in his plan and his kingdom. And so, so coming back to that question, what do we do? Where's your default when you are in that waiting period for God to fulfill, for God to do something that you've been praying for? What do you do during that time? What's your default? Do you kind of default to that? You know, I'm going to be pretty unhappy. I mean, when I think of, of, of Darlene Rose and, and her story of being in this camp, I mean, she, she was a missionary in, in Papua New Guinea, already serving God, and then she goes into this prison camp and has to face all of these things. And I think if anybody has a right to, be, to feel bad for themselves and be angry with God, it's probably her. Yet, yet what, what do we do and what do you choose to do in this process? In Zechariah chapter 7, you can open your Bibles. Um, we pick up two years after God initially speaks to Zechariah and Zechariah speaks to the people. So we're two years later from, from verse 1, chapter 1. And we're actually two years before, at this point, the completion of the temple, the, the rebuilding of the temple. The, the, the prophecy that, that was in Isaiah saying that after 70 years, God will rebuild the temple. And, and that symbolically meant that God's presence and his prosperity would be with his people. And so they're two years after, after Zechariah spoke to the people and, and were two years before the completion of the temple. The temple's being rebuilt. And, and, and so they're in this waiting time and they've been in this waiting time for 70 years. And, and, and so here in, in verse one, in chapter 7. It says, In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regim Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord. These were a group of people who were religious leaders and respected and, and kind of had influence and power in Israel. And in verse 3, it says, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Basically, what they're asking is they say, you know, for, for years and, and for our, 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 the time that we've been in captivity, we've been regularly fasting and mourning for our situation, and what, what has happened. So he says, should we continue to fast and be sad about what has happened to us? He says in the fifth month, in the fifth month there was a religious fast that, that they were doing, which was to remember the destruction of the temple. Basically, it was remembering the loss of Jerusalem and their autonomy, their freedom. And so every fifth month they would do this fast before the Lord. And there's other fasts. There's, this, I think, the seventh month they would do a fast that would remember the, the destruction of the wall of Jerusalem. And so they would have these things. And so they, they, come, to, they come to Zechariah and say, how, how long should we keep doing this? Because we've been doing this for almost 70 years. Every fifth month we come to God and we fast and we mourn. And frankly, we're, I mean, it's a little old. And that's kind of the attitude that they have. It's a little old and we've done this and, and we've been good religious people because we've showed up 
and we've done our thing and the thing that is supposed to please you. And so now it's time for us to get what we should get. And, and so should we keep doing this even though the temple's gonna be rebuilt and God's, you know, that shows God's presence and, you know, it's, it's almost done. So like, can we just stop going through all this stuff? Because it's our time now, right? It's time for us to, to, to get what, what we want and go on with our lives instead of going in this cycle of just being sad about things and, and dealing with this. They're in this waiting period and, and it's been long and drawn out and they're tired of it. It's really a self-focused question. It's not a question that probably has great motivations behind it. They recognize of how well they do religion. It's like them coming up and saying, hey, uh, God, uh, you kind of owe us something because, you know, I go to church like two and a half times a month, which is more than the national average. So like, I'm pretty good religious. Okay. So like I do that. And so, so God, it's time that you, you follow through with what you promised or what you owe me or what, what I deserve because I'm doing these things for you. And the problem is their focus is on the restoration of the temple, a building rather than the transformation of the people. They're looking and saying, look, look, God, our, the temple's being built. So now we can, we, we can, we can rejoice and, and we can celebrate and we can, we can enjoy ourselves again. But their focus is on that building rather than on what God is building in them. Is their life being built by God rather than just them doing a building project? And, and, and so... It's kind of like what they're saying is, God, when can I get what I want because you owe me for all of my sacrifice? Like, God, I've done all these things for you. I didn't do these things, which my friends were doing, and I did these things, which I know I'm supposed to do because you say in your word I'm supposed to do that, and, and, I, and, I, didn't, and I, didn't, I didn't participate in this, and, and I, I, so I sacrificed all these things for you, God. So when am I going to get what, what is owed to me? You know, we, we, we do these things and, and, and we think, you know, God, there's a point where, where I should just be happy. So they come to the prophet and they, they, they mention this. And so God responds to them in verse four. But I think it's interesting because God doesn't really answer their question, but he asks them a question. And so in verse four, it says, then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? Like, that's a good question. Were you doing that for me, for God? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? So here's, here's, what, here's what God says. See, they didn't just do these fasts and mourning. They also did feasts and celebrations. And so, and so God comes back and he says, you know, while you fasted and mourned, What, what did you do with that? Who were you focusing on? Who, who were you doing that for? And, and, and were you growing in that? Were you really focusing on me? Or were you, it, was it just about you? Are you fasting for, for God? Or, or were you doing this to just check a box? 
It's, it's kind of like, you know, do we, do we show up at church because we know that that's something that God wants us to do? Or do we do it because we love God? Because we want to grow in intimacy with him and we know that part of that is to gather together corporately in the gospel community. He says, when you celebrate, do you celebrate out of gratitude toward God or is it just self-indulgence? In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, I'm reminded of what Paul says so when he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He's saying, is that what you're doing? Are you doing this to the glory of God or are you just doing this because you want, you want to feel better about yourselves? Or are you focusing on me in this process? When you, when you fast, when you're sacrificing, are you doing it for me? And when you celebrate, are you doing it in, in, in light of me? And so basically what, what, what we're seeing here in chapter seven is God responds to the people is that it's not about your outward behavior. It's about your transformation from the inside, your heart moving the behavior outside a surrendered will. See, God's saying, look, you can do all the fast. You can fast every month if you want, but if you're not doing it out of love for me, from your heart, from, uh, from a surrendered will, and you're doing it because we're making a transaction that, okay, I'll fast God every month and, and you need to make sure then you keep your end of the deal and you, you bless me and you prosper me. And you make sure that nothing bad happens in my life. That's kind of what they're saying. And they're saying, so we've done this for 70 years. And God says, yeah, you have. But where's your heart been in? I mean, has your heart been in it these 70 years? It's like God saying, look, I, I gave you these 70 years for you to grow and for you to develop. But, but what have you been focused on? And, and he says, do you really even hear God? Are you listening? Or are you just trying to get what you want? You see, they claim that they, they worship God. They claim that they've been worshiping God for 70 years. But God questions and says, well, have you? Because God's not sure that they have been worshiping him for 70 years. And so he asks them, really, are you? And, and really what they've been practicing is a self-pleasing worship. They've been focused on themselves rather than God. And so, so really there's some characteristics that are present in self-pleasing worship. One, one characteristic is selfishness. That we go into worship God. Maybe it's a Bible study. Maybe we're singing songs. Maybe we go to church. Maybe we're, we're in a group of people praying or, or we're, whatever we're doing. But, but we, we are looking at it as how this benefits me or how it makes me feel. The telltale sign of, of selfishness in worship is that when you walk out and you say, yeah, I didn't get anything out of that. Like it really wasn't my style. It wasn't, it, you know, I didn't like the way it was presented. It just, I didn't get anything out of that. And that's, that's, that's selfishness. That's a self-pleasing worship. Another, another characteristic of it is unwillingness where, where our, 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 our approach to God is, is not born from desire or love, but from habit or routine or, or just that maybe we have nothing better to do. And sometimes our, our unwillingness shows the value there comes out in, in almost our, our, our lack of urgency or tardiness. That kind of like, oh, well, there's something better came up to do instead of gather with the body. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to really place it very high on my list of priorities. I mean, I'll go when it's convenient or I'll show up on time when, when, when it works out. 
but, but I mean, it's, it's not really, I mean, and that, that we kind of we we see that in this self-pleasing worship. And sometimes it shows up in lethargy, that there's really no interest in excelling in worship to God, that there's no or maybe little effort to be present and focused. It's kind of like, how many times have I sat down and, 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 and prayed to God and I get done and I don't even remember what I prayed. <laughs> that I kind of fell asleep while I prayed and then I wake up and kind of say, oh God, I was praying and I don't even know what I pray. Or, or when we do a study, we read some scripture, we read our chapter during the day and we get done and within seconds, we don't even remember what we read. We're not really present or focused in that moment. But we just do it because we, you know, know we should and we're going to and it just, we checked a box. I think one of the other characteristics of self-pleasing worship is, is, is the purpose of guilt clearing. That doing this, showing up on Sunday morning, will cleanse me from a week's worth of selfish living and sin. That somehow, somehow it will make me feel better about me because I showed up and did this. And yet during the week, I, I treated people poorly and I made selfish decisions and, and I, and I uh, appeased my sin nature, but I, I'll go to church or I'll, or I'll do my Bible study and that way that'll fix me so that I can go back to do, you know, kind of live whatever way I want again. That's not really worship of God. That's trying to just clear the guilt that I have for the way I've been living. You see, this isn't how we build an intimate and joy-filled relationship with Jesus. That's not how we do that. And God says, look, you've had all this time and, and you've been doing all these things, but do you even know me? Are you, are you really growing in intimacy with, with me during this time? And he says, because it doesn't seem like it. Because you've been focused on yourselves rather than, than God. In verse 8, God, God shares what he's always wanted. And God's been very clear about this throughout human history. So he says in verse 8, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. And, and so here's what's interesting. He says, he says, look, this is what I've wanted the whole time. This is what I've always wanted. This is what I've told your forefathers that I've wanted. This is what I've told your ancestors. This is what I will tell your children and your children's children. It's very clear. That, that I want you to do justice, I want you to love mercy, and I want you to walk humbly, which is what Micah 6.8 says when, when, when the prophet there says, he has told you what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's in every prophet, that's in every book of the prophets. To do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly. That's in every book of the Bible. And Jesus in the New Testament is the fulfillment of that, doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly. Like, it's incredible. That's, the, that's what God wants from us. And here he says, I want you to render true judgments. In other words, judge according to truth without bias or partiality. Do justice without your bias and partiality, according to God's truth. Execute justice that way. 
Let it be founded and, and rooted in God's word. And then he says, show kindness and mercy. In other words, love one another, even your enemy, and, 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 and show kindness and compassion to everyone. Not just the ones who are convenient or you have an easy time caring for, but everyone. Then he says, avoid oppression and evil. Don't oppress those who are vulnerable. And don't have evil in your hearts towards one another. In other words, it's the essence of humility. The essence of humility is to treat others as better than yourself, modeled by Jesus when it says in Philippians that he humbled himself and became a servant to all. That's what we're called to do. You see, our inward reality with God is the prescription for spiritual growth or transformation. See, when, when really I, th- I think, you know, the whole message of what we are called to do is justice, mercy, and humility. And justice is how you do right based on truth. That's, when, that's you becoming just. How you do right based on on truth. It doesn't matter what it costs. You do right based on truth. Mercy is how you do good in the absence of deserving. How you do good to people that don't deserve good. That they don't deserve it. And and why would you do that? Well, because I didn't deserve good when Jesus did good to me. I don't deserve Jesus' mercy, yet he has mercy towards me. And humility, it's how you forgive and love others by knowing God. You see, here's the the deal. You cannot know God without humility. You'll know a conception of God that was created by your own arrogant mind, if you're not humble, but you don't know God. And, and, and so, so part, of, part of humility growing is, us, is how we forgive and love others by knowing God. When we know God, truly know God, we are humbled by his love and his forgiveness and his pursuit of us. And that causes us to then walk in humility and forgive and love others as well. One of the stories that Darlene Rose tells about her time in the internment camp, I think illustrates the the growth of justice and mercy and humility. Mr. Yamaji was the the director who ran the POW camp. And he was cruel and vindictive and vicious. And everything he did was done in hopes to strike fear in the, the captives' minds and hearts. And after he heard about Darlene's husband's death in another camp... He summoned her to his office, not to let her know and console her, but to gloat about it. And so he called her into his office, and Darlene says that that she really, I mean, didn't have anything to lose. And so she came into his office, and she addressed him, and she said this, and and I quote her words. She said, Jesus died for you, Mr. Yamaji, and he puts love in our hearts even for those who are our enemies. That's why I don't hate you, Mr. Yamaji. Maybe God brought me to this place in this time to tell you that he loves you. 
I can't imagine a better example of someone who has chosen to pursue transformation while she was in a time of waiting and to see this kind of justice, mercy, and humility come out. It's interesting because she says that after she said that to him, he removed himself from his office and she could hear him weeping and he came back in composed and dismissed her. Later in the internment camp, she was accused by the guards for being an American spy, which she wasn't, and they were going to execute her. And Mr. Yamaji came out and he told the guards to let her go and let her go back to her barracks. Later, years later in the 1980s, Darlene heard a story about Mr. Yamaji who was then living in Japan. And the story was this, that Mr. Yamaji somehow had gotten onto the radio and he shared the gospel over Japanese radio. While we're waiting for God to fulfill his promises, his desire is to transform us and cause us to become the kind of people who can participate in his kingdom. That's what God was doing with her. That's what God was trying to do with the Israelites for those 70 years, was to try to prepare them to become the kind of people that can participate in his kingdom, in his plan. Where Darlene was recognizing that and and she was living that out. The people in Israel were were just grumbling and complaining and saying, we're going to wait this out until we get our reward. But God comes back and says, but no, this is an opportunity for you to become the kind of people who can participate in my kingdom. It was an act of grace and mercy for those people. So then in verse 11, God continues to speak to his people in in a warning. So he says, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Verse 11, but they, speaking of their ancestors their forefathers, and them to a degree. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts has sent them by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. And we remember that God's anger is different than our anger. God's anger is always restorative. It is always to call us to return to God. And it says, therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts as I called and they would not hear. So they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land was left desolate so that no one went to and fro and the pleasant land was made desolate. What did the people do? What did their forefathers do when God spoke to them to say, I want you to become the kind of people who can participate with me. I want you to be a people of justice and mercy and humility. It says that they didn't listen. They hardened their hearts. So what did God do? It said he got angry. And again, God's anger is a grace that he gives us to bring us to to restoration and to call us to return to him. And then he scattered them so that they would have an opportunity to transform. That's the reason God sent them into exile, 
was to get their attention so that they could become the kind of people who could participate with all of the plans that he had for their lives and for his kingdom. It's so easy for us when we aren't getting what we want or what we think we deserve or just the basics that we need for us to, 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 to reject God's voice and say, so I'm just going to fix this my own way. So we come back to that initial question. What do you do while you're waiting for God's promises to come to pass? What do you do? What do you do when, when, when there's a time of waiting because you're in a place that, that you feel ungrounded and you feel cons- cons- confused or, 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 or depressed or sad or, or think you get news that's devastating? What do you do in the waiting time while you're waiting for God to fulfill his promises? I want you to hear the rest of, of Darlene's story of that day that there was the bombing of the barracks. So listen to this. And I said, Lord, that was the only thing I had left. Couldn't I just have that? And the minute I touched it, it just completely disintegrated. I said, that was all I had. And he said to me, my child, that's what I want to do with you. I want to make you like pure gold, even if I have to take you through the fire seven times. I stood up and I said, all right, Lord, I'm available. I saw that the lady in the barracks, head of the barracks next to me was crying and I went over to her and I put my arm around her and I said, please don't cry. She said, my mattress burned. I said, oh yes, everything's burned, but we have much to thank God for, we're still alive. She said, but I didn't leave it in the barracks. I grabbed it off my bed and I took it out and I threw it in the ditch where you always lie. I walked over to that ditch and right there where I had been lying was the ashes from her mattress and the casing from the bomb. I stood up, I walked away. I have never known such awe in the presence of my Lord. And I said, Father, it wasn't that woman's Bible you were concerned about, was it? You knew that was one way to get me out of that ditch. I said, God, whatever days you give me on this earth from now on, I want you to really know that it all belongs to you. Will you become the kind of people, the kind of person who's ready to participate in God's kingdom? Because that's what it comes down to. whatever it is, whatever fire you're walking through, whatever difficulty you are experiencing, are you willing to allow God through it to make you the kind of person who's able to participate in his kingdom? Because that's the choice that sits in front of you. It doesn't make it any easier I mean, you hear the struggle in 
Darlene's voice, and she told that story decades after she experienced it. It doesn't remove the pain, but it does change our focus and our perspective. I want to give you some questions to ask this week of yourself and in your gospel community. And the first one is this. What are you going to do while you are waiting for God? What are you going to do while you're waiting for God to fulfill his promises, to deliver you from whatever it is? Are you going to go to your default? Because I'll be honest, my default is to get through it as quickly as possible and then forget about it. Or knowing what you know now, that in that waiting, God's intent is to shape you and form you into the kind of person who is ready to participate in his kingdom. Second question is this, are you a self-pleasing worshiper? Unpack your thoughts on that. What is God saying to you? When, when you say to God, when you say, God, you know, I, I really, do I have to do this again? I mean, I've been doing this for a long time and does God say to you, have you been doing that for me? And then the third question is this. Are you the kind of person who's ready to participate in God's kingdom, which is characterized by justice, mercy, and humility? I think so many of us think we're ready to participate, but justice, mercy, and humility does not characterize us. So where are you? I want to invite the band to come up. And they're going to sing and we're going to sing together. And here's what I want this morning. I don't want anyone to get up or, or move around right now. I want, I want everyone to just kind of stay here. And we want to worship together. And after the band finishes the song, after we worship together, I'm going to ask the prayer team and the shepherding team to come up. And I want to give a specific invitation for us to receive prayer. And so when we're done singing, I don't want you to get up and leave We've got some time, and I want you to just sit quietly, worshiping and allowing God to work. And, and I'll dismiss us when we're done.